Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. This episode is the first of two focusing on decolonization in Algeria. Today, we start with another movie. This one released in France in 2006. The film is titled Indigent, or The Natives, and was released in the English-speaking world as Days of Glory. Directed by the Algerian-French filmmaker Rashid Bouchareb, it recounts the experiences of a group of young Algerian and Moroccan men who serve in the French army in World War II. The film follows them from the campaigns in North Africa, Italy, and then to France itself. During World War II, as Zora Dreef reminds us, Algeria's French population chose to side with the Vichy regime. That is, the government that chose to collaborate with Nazi Germany following France's calamitous military defeat in June 1940. But by 1943, anti-Vichy forces, known as the Free French and led by General Charles de Gaulle, had taken control of Algeria. And, as depicted in Days of Glory, tens of thousands of Algerian, Moroccan, Tunisian, and Senegalese soldiers would serve in the Free French Army. Indeed, up to the end of 1942, General de Gaulle had around 50,000 men under his command. But after Algeria came under Free French control, he had half a million. In the end, African soldiers comprised some two-thirds of Free French forces. Their service and the hardships their families endured would fuel demands for reform or independence during and after the war. Bouchareb's beautiful and powerful film depicts the war from the viewpoint of African soldiers and explores the conflicted responses of the young men to serving the colonizer. It also depicts the pervasive discrimination non-white soldiers endured, particularly when they reached metropolitan or European, France. The film won multiple awards at the great annual Cannes Film Festival. That's France's equivalent of the American Academy Awards. But it achieved something else, something most feature films never achieve, real political change. Before the film was released, the vast majority of white French people had no idea the French government had stopped paying pensions to World War II veterans who had become citizens of newly independent states that had been French colonies, like Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, and Senegal. The film called attention to this fact in the closing credits. Then, French President Jacques Chirac saw it and ordered the restoration of payments of the pensions, though not retroactively. Then, in 2009, British journalists revealed another ugly episode from the war. Remember that in June 1944, Allied armies invaded German-occupied France. A far less famous invasion in southern France took place in August. Many African soldiers served in that campaign, and it is depicted in Days of Glory. After intense fighting, German forces were driven out of France. A particularly important moment began August 19th, the beginning of the final liberation of Paris. Some free French forces would be involved in the fighting, 
and General de Gaulle was intent on making sure those forces were what he called French, meaning white. American and British officials not only backed de Gaulle, but demanded that no black soldiers be present in the city's liberation. But here was the problem. There were so many African soldiers serving in the French army that Allied officials had to piece together an all-white division from a bunch of other divisions. Why did they do this? The liberation of Paris did not involve very much fighting. Paris was one of the few major European cities to survive the war with very little damage. Yet its liberation was of, en of enormous symbolic importance to the Allies. The ideology of whiteness, as W.E.B. Du Bois called it, was willing to force colonial subjects to risk and lose their lives for the mother country. And Allied officials certainly understood the importance of colonial subjects to the war effort. But that was the problem. The ideology of whiteness could not tolerate the perception of dependence on non-white soldiers. Nor could it tolerate this perception becoming widespread either among whites or among non-whites. Nor did they wish anyone to see that non-white soldiers could fight just as effectively as anyone. Certainly, there was a strong desire to ignore the inconvenient and dangerous fact that non-white soldiers had played an important role in beating a white army. These fears were not only prevalent among white British and French officials, they were particularly pronounced among white Americans. While the U.S. did not have an overseas empire like Britain's or France's, it exercised another kind of imperial rule over black Americans through segregation. And while black Americans served in the war, the U.S. War Department not only extended segregation to the armed forces, it segregated supplies of blood. As in many other colonies, the end of World War II did not lead directly to Algeria's independence, which was finally achieved in 1962, and only after a long and very bloody war. Like other colonial wars, the Algerian War was complicated. It was in part a war between Algerian nationalists, European settlers, and the French army. But it was also a terrible civil war between Algerians, the implications of which would extend far beyond the year of independence. Until the first decade of the 1800s, Algeria had been part of the Ottoman Empire. France, taking advantage of Ottoman weakness, began to seize control of the territory in the 1830s and fought a long war of so-called pacification in the interior. In the later years of the 1800s, thousands of European settlers, most of them French, poured into the colony. So if India was the crown jewel of Britain's global empire, then Algeria was the same for France. Even more so from the perspective of the French, considering Algeria was not just a colony, but was legally part of France. And also unlike India, Algeria was a settler colony. By 1954, the year the war between Algerian nationalists and France began, there were about one million Europeans, mostly French, living in Algeria, or just 1% of the total population. 
They lived mainly in the coastal cities and were known as Pieds Noirs, a reference in French to the black boots worn by colonial soldiers. And the families of many of them had been in Algeria for several generations. For them, France was Algeria and Algeria was France. The vast majority of the population was comprised of Arabs and Berbers and was Sunni Muslim. And while Algeria was legally part of France, there was nothing like civil and economic equality between Europeans and non-Europeans. Algeria is vast, 42 million square miles. Most of the country is desert and mountains, but it has a long and strategically located Mediterranean Sea coastline, along which lay its most important cities, including the capital of Algiers. Most Algerian Arabs and Berbers lived outside the cities and in poverty. By the outbreak of the War for Independence, French officials estimated that 90% of Algeria's wealth was held by just 10% of its population, that is, the European population. One third of Algerians' 9 million Arabs and Berbers were either underemployed or could only find part-time work. Perhaps 85% of the country's Muslims were illiterate. Europeans, by contrast, enjoyed a far higher standard of living, not as high as metropolitan France or Britain or West Germany, but about that of Greece or Spain. But the divisions were not just political and economic, they were cultural and physical. Zora Drief gives us a vivid portrait of what it was like for a relatively well-off and privileged young Algerian woman to arrive in Algiers from her small village in the countryside. Notice how she describes the city as sharply divided into two worlds, the Muslim and the European. Note too her description of the Kasbah, the old Arab quarter from the days of Ottoman rule. The area was densely packed. Some 80,000 people lived together in about 40 square acres of space. And it was built into the side of a hill facing the European quarter and port below. See the slides in the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. The Kasbah would be the scene of a particularly dramatic chapter in the fight between the French and the FLN. And the divide ran through individuals. Again, Zora Dreef is a good example. Note the multiple layers of her identity and how they did not always fit neatly together. There was her strong connection to her family and to the traditions of Algerian society and Islam, alongside her determination to become an educated woman whose life would be very different from her mother's and most other Algerian women. Note her love of her hometown alongside her powerful attraction to the city of Algiers. And while she identified with great pride as Algerian, Arab, and Muslim, she was also to a certain extent culturally French. For one thing, she spoke the language perfectly. It was, after all, the language of her high school and university educations. And she seems to have had little difficulty in wearing European-style clothes, and even passing as a European when it suited her purposes. Notice too that her anti-imperialism was highly localized but also global. 
It was, of course, Algeria's particular situation that was of the greatest significance to her. But she, like many other colonial subjects around the world, were inspired by and learned from the struggles of others. As elsewhere in the colonized world, 1945 represented a turning point. On May 8th, the very day Nazi Germany finally surrendered to the Allies in Europe, thousands of Algerians marched in the town of Setif, east of Algiers and near the Mediterranean coast. The nervous local French administrator, who had just 20 men at his disposal to police the city, allowed the march as long as no one made any political statements. But a great deal of tension had been building up over the last few months. Setif was a hotspot of Algerian nationalism. Few European settlers lived there. Making matters more combustible was the fact that the area had received no rain since January. This on top of two years of poor harvests. Along with the fact that the French had taken emergency stockpiles of food and shipped them to Europe. Locals also noticed with great resentment that a foreign company owned the region's best farmland, which was producing quite well. Not surprisingly, banners expressing support for an exiled nationalist leader, Mesali Hajj, along with outright calls for independence, appeared during the march. Some demonstrators held a green and white flag, the flag of the famous 19th century Algerian rebel Abdel Khader, and, as it would turn out, the flag of the FLN. It's not clear who fired first, demonstrators or French police. But it is clear that a small number of Algerians began attacking European settlers and colonial officers in and around Setif. The attacks went on for five days. An official French report counted 103 Europeans killed and 100 more wounded. Then French soldiers, backed up by Senegalese infantrymen, arrived in force, as did French warplanes. Towns were bombed from the air. Soldiers and enraged settlers began killing any Arab they encountered. A French warship shelled the coastline. As you might imagine, accounts of casualties vary widely. An official French report estimated 1,020 to 1,300. Radio broadcasts from Egypt claimed the figure was 45,000, a figure that Algerian nationalists would accept as factual. As usual, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. The larger point is that while the French government played down the massacre to audiences in metropolitan France, it became a foundational moment for Algerian national identity. One liberal Algerian poet, Kateb Yassin, put it this way, and I'm quoting, My sense of humanity was affronted for the first time by the most atrocious sights. I was 16 years old. The shock which I felt at the pitiless butchery that caused the deaths of thousands of Muslims, I have never forgotten. From that moment, my nationalism took definite form. How does Zora Drief talk about Satif in her memoir? As in other colonies, 
numerous oppositional groups and parties had formed in Algeria in the 1920s and 1930s. A small armed group calling itself the Special Organization formed in 1947, but the French had dismantled it by 1951. But it would be the National Liberation Front, or the FLN, and its Armed Forces Division, the ALN, that would become the dominant resistance group. It was the FLN, ALN, that launched a war against the French in 1954, and it was the FLN that Zora Dreef became determined to serve. She writes about some of these opposition groups and her responses to them. Why do you think she was drawn to the cause of armed insurrection? After all, while she was a colonial subject, and of course, as a woman, an Arab, and a Muslim, she had to endure a wide range of discriminatory practices. She was also, in important ways, privileged. Her father, though quite traditional and conservative, allowed her to study in Algiers and did not demand she leave school to marry a man not of her choosing. And it's also true that she was a beneficiary of at least part of the French colonial system, its schools and universities. But her life as a hardworking student was soon to end as she joins the FLN and takes part in its epic struggle against the French in Algiers. I'll talk about this fight and how it was depicted in another great film, Gilo Pantecorvo's The Battle of Algiers, in the next episode. Thanks for listening and be well.